We're travelling along in Matthew and we come to chapter 8 and we're at verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he carried our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their own dead. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ the word. Well, friends, good morning. There's a bit of a, a social distancing traffic jam there. Uh, it's great to be with you. This stand is very high, isn't it? Uh, this is beyond my technical skills. How do I do this? Thank you. Um, friends, it's great to be with you. There's um, something wonderful about having other people in the room. Unlike Jay, I haven't had three attractive people in front of me. I've just had my computer screen in front of me the last few weeks, and I've seen myself. And the only good thing about that is uh, I can't fall asleep when I'm preaching. I guess. But uh, now I've got real people in front of me. There's a, a sense of nervousness. How are they going to respond? Are they going to fall asleep? Are they going to put me off? Some of them might do. Uh, but I'm comforted that it's the same word that does the work, whether we're in the same place, uh, whether we're all together. And so I'm going to pray that the God who speaks would speak to each one of us now through his word. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that your word is powerful that it's living and active. And we pray now uh, in homes around Christchurch, around New Zealand, possibly around the world, that you would be working by your word through your spirit, that you would open our hearts to hear what you'd have to say to each one of us. For Jesus' sake, amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've been uniquely selected to save the world. You've been endowed with great power from heaven. You have phenomenal skills of communication. How would you go about achieving your mission? One obvious way would be through large public rallies. That's been a way that many leaders have, uh, have changed the world in the last few hundred or thousand years. But it's a strategy very different to that of Jesus. Rather than hordes of fans or many shouting spectators, Jesus went for something totally different a small number of devoted disciples. We're heading this bit of Matthew, when God stepped in, dot, dot, dot. And today's title is, when God stepped in, dot, 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 he commanded commitment. And in some ways, this first bit of the passage is a bridge from what we saw last week and last week's theme. Last week, we saw Jesus' great power and authority to heal sickness. And we see that again Today, Jesus goes into Peter's house 
and there is Peter's mother-in-law, sick with a fever. And we see Jesus reach out his hand and touch her, and instantly she's healed. But in this passage, we also see her response, and it's the response of a devoted disciple. As soon as she's healed, she gets up, and we're told she began to wait on him. The word here for waited on is the same word that's always used in the Bible of service, both service at tables and service in more spiritual senses. Now, we shouldn't read too much into that, but we shouldn't miss the loveliness of this picture. Peter's mother-in-law doesn't get up and say, Jesus, thank you. Peter, you and your mates have a lovely time now. I'm clearing off to watch Netflix. No, she goes up and serves Jesus, and it's beautiful. And I don't know about you, as you hear this read, but as somebody who's been healed by Jesus, not just of a fever, but of all my sins washed away, I see this picture and I long to be like this. I want to be a devoted disciple. Well, our passage helps flesh out what it means to be a devoted disciple. But before that, notice what happens as word gets around. This man, Jesus, with remarkable powers is in town. And we read verse 16, that many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And then Matthew offers a comment on why Jesus did this. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our infirmities and carried our diseases. It's a quote from a famous section of Isaiah about the suffering servant, the one who would come and deal with Israel's sin, deal with their estrangement from God, restore the relationship with him. Well, to the first hearers, Matthew's meaning would have been clear. This is the one uniquely selected to save the world. The one who'll bring in the kingdom of heaven, the one who'll defeat sickness, who'll deal with death, who'll wipe away shame, who'll finish sin, bringing people back to God and giving them eternal life. He's the one. But it brings us back to our opening question. How does the one chosen to save the world accomplish his mission? Because in front of him is a crowd. There's a great many people and they're amazed at him. It seems the ideal time for a mass rally. Get the people chanting, make Israel great again. But what does Jesus do? Verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. He clears off. He leaves them. And we see when God steps in, he doesn't want groupies. He doesn't want fans or, or followers in the Facebook sense. He wants devoted disciples. And he's prepared to leave many people to go to, the, to be with a few. The few who listen to his command for commitment. Well, two people come up to him with questions. They've got a notion of following him, and the way Jesus answers them is shocking. It's unnerving, particularly so because the areas they ask about go deep. Jesus commands devotion to him, but that devotion may impact our material comfort, and it may impact our family relations. It may well be that there's some listening now who are not believers. You're wondering, what it is to follow Jesus. And Jesus says these words so that you will, if you decide to follow him, go in with your eyes wide open. Many of us, of course, are followers of Jesus. We're disciples. 
We need to hear this so that when our devotion to Jesus comes in collision with something else vying for our loyalty, be it our material comfort or a family commitment or something else, we won't be surprised and we won't be knocked off course. We'll keep being devoted to Jesus. Well, the first guy comes. Verse 19, a teacher of the law. And he says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, okay, but foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus says, in essence, look before you leap. Know what it is you're getting yourself into. If you're coming to follow me, hoping for riches or fame or reflected glory or a comfortable life, don't. Because I don't have one. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus refers to himself here by this strange title, the Son of Man. It's an unusual title. It's one found in the book of Daniel. And it's not a mainstream title. It's not one that uh, people would necessarily have, have expected Jesus to use. And in part, I think Jesus uses it because it is ambiguous. He could have called himself openly the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one. But then people would have pigeonholed him because they expected the Christ to come and overthrow the Romans. But the Son of Man was more ambiguous, and so Jesus is able to fill it full of meaning. Well, when Jesus uses it, he, he uses it in a variety of ways, but he refers chiefly to two main events, to his suffering at the cross, and then to his return in glory as God's king openly with power. But at this stage, there's ambiguity. We don't know what is Jesus' role. Well, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And it's all the more striking because of what we do know from the wider Gospels. Jesus is God come down. God stepped in. The one who left the glory of heaven to be on earth. Jesus is the one who will come again with all the glory of the kingdom. But first, there will be suffering. There is glory for Jesus and Jesus' followers. But first, there is a cross. In the first place, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And we'll see that that's more than a figure of speech next week, as that very night, Jesus lays his head not in a palace or in a comfortable hotel, but in the back of a boat. But there's a danger that when we speak of becoming a Christian, when we speak of the blessings of being a Christian, as we long that people would put their trust in Jesus, that we speak much of the blessing, but we don't speak of the cost. We talk of the crown that awaits us when we enter the kingdom of heaven, but we don't speak of the cross that we must carry until the day we receive the crown. And if we do this, the danger is we'll make fickle fans. The danger is we'll be fickle fans of Jesus rather than devoted disciples. Well, the cost of following Jesus may come in many forms. The Apostle Paul warns, whoever wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in our society, there's not much outright opposition. Sometimes there is. Often it's much more subtle. People look down on us, sneer at us. You don't believe those funny things, do you? In some countries, though, it is much more obvious and violent. But what Jesus highlights here is those who follow him may experience material comfort. We may not have a safe place to call home. And if that happens, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. 
because Jesus, the Son of Man, had nowhere to lay his head. For some people, devotion to Jesus will mean giving up much, either by choice or by necessity. I thought of uh, C.T. Studd as I was reading these verses. C.T. Studd was a Christian in the 19th century. He uh, was one of the first cricketers to play in the first Ashes match between England and Australia. He became a Christian in his teens, and he was fabulously wealthy. When his father died, he inherited a fortune. But he felt that, in his case, devotion to Jesus meant becoming a missionary. And he sold all of his inheritance to go and be an itinerant missionary in many different countries. He chose to do that out of devotion to Jesus. Others have it forced upon them. You can imagine a Muslim man who's told if he accepts Jesus, he's, he's heard the gospel, he longs to receive eternal life in Jesus' name. And he's told if he does that, if he receives baptism, then he'll be cut off from his family. And his father says, you'll be dead to me. Well, he receives baptism. And not only does he lose his family, but the house that they're building next door for him and his young bride, well, he can't take it. Tremendous cost for following Jesus. Now, we're not all called to do that. But if we follow Jesus, it may well impact our material comfort. I say may well rather than it will, because there are many stories where uh, people have, say, been addicted to alcohol or, or gambling or drugs, and they've met Jesus, and he's pulled them out of that, and their habit was pushing them to the poverty line. And suddenly their material standard rises. They're able to provide for their families. But in other cases, before we followed Jesus, we used our time and our talents and our gifts to make our own lives more comfortable. All we're concerned about is ourselves. And then we hear that all of that, our, our time, our talents, our, our money, it's all a gift of God. And we long to use it for God's glory because we're devoted to Jesus. And so we stop doing things or stop buying things that we previously did because we follow Jesus. And there's a cost. There's great joy in the cost, but there's a cost. Following Jesus may impact our material comfort. And that's something we need to hear because Jesus' words collide with the story of modern life. Jesus says in John's gospel, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I meant to bring my credit card to wave around. In our world, our credit cards say, I've come that you may have life to the full. Blessing in this life, we're told, is through acquisition. And perhaps one of the peaks of that is owning your own home, having a place that you can lay your head and say, that's mine. Now, owning a home is a tremendous blessing. It's a good gift of God. But it's a blessing, not a right. And there's a danger that uh, the lie creeps in that, no, you deserve that. You, you must have that. And we make it our goal to own that thing. And maybe it's a goal we can only achieve if we stop being generous. It's a goal we can only achieve if we take some work that really we know we shouldn't because it involves much that is unsavory and Jesus wouldn't like that. Maybe it's a goal we can achieve by taking in a lodger who is unpleasant and will drag us away from Jesus. Now, this is a, an issue I know myself personally. I've been challenged by this verse personally. I don't own a home. And as I've thought on this verse these past, this past week or so, I've wondered what is it in my heart that, that longs so desperately for that? And I think in my case, the answer is because I worry 
when I retire, will I have somewhere to live? So it's so blessed to remember who it is I follow. Not a harsh taskmaster saying this to ruin our fun, but the loving Lord Jesus, who's healed all my sins, who I trust for my eternity. And if I can trust him for my eternity, can I not trust him with my retirement? Well, Jesus says here words that are challenging, particularly challenging if, like me, the narrative of this world has got into your mind. But there's also tremendous comfort in this. Because while society says to us, you are what you own, flourishing involves having all this stuff, these verses remind us that story is wrong. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus shows our value is not what, we, what produce we own. It's not a function of how big our house is or how smart our phone is or how jangly our jewelry is. No, there's more to life than this. Maybe that during lockdown, we've seen something of that as we haven't been able to consume in the same way. It'd be a shame if we unreflectively sprang back to old habits. But you see, it would be a shame because we know the one man who lived life to its fullest, the one man who had life to the full, and yet he had no place to lay his head. Well, friends, as we're devoted to him, it may affect our material comfort, but we're devoted to the one who has the power of heaven, the one who suffered and then entered glory. We may sacrifice, we may suffer now, but we follow him on a path that leads to glory. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The question is, will we follow him there? Well, then comes the second man. And he says, Lord, first, presumably before they cross the lake, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. And having just challenged our view of material comfort, Jesus now challenges our family relationships. And Jesus' words sound harsh. They sound unloving. I think they sound so harsh because they sound unloving. One of the things that's been tremendously hard for many in this lockdown is being unable to go to the funeral of loved ones. I know that some listening, that's been the case, and it's been tremendously hard. Is Jesus saying we shouldn't do that? Well, Jesus is not saying we should never go to a funeral. But he is saying, for the disciple of Jesus, devotion to him trumps devotion to family. Sounds unloving, but I hope we'll see by the end that actually it's a form of love for our family. Now, the situation is not quite what we would imagine in our funeral culture. In, in, our, in, in, in our society, it's quite possible that uh, somebody's father might pass away and then uh, the funeral's not for a few days or weeks. And we can imagine that this guy's in between that. His father's died and he's waiting for the funeral. In, in the context, uh, someone would be buried within about 24 hours of dying. So if his father had just died, he wouldn't be with Jesus. So it's, he's not saying don't go to the, the funeral in that sense. Well, what is he talking about, burying his father? There are two possibilities. One is that the funeral itself has happened. He has been buried, but there are some kind of memorial rites that he needs to take part in. I think more likely the expression, bury my father, is an idiom. If I asked somebody to, to do something in church that was very significant, they might say, well, look, let me just let the, the, the kids fly the nest. Now, clearly, we don't expect our kids to, to sprout wings and fly. Well, in the same way, the expression, 
bury my father, maybe an idiom like that. Let me wait until my, my parents die, and, and then I'll be free. Well, that changes the perspective. It's not quite so harsh, but it shouldn't remove the shock. It's still very strong, isn't it? Jesus is saying devotion to him trumps devotion even to our family. Now, we need to be clear. Jesus commands us to love our family. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. And in other places, he takes people to task for not doing that. And as we make decisions as devoted followers of Jesus, so often the decision to follow Jesus will mean we love our family more. But there are times when the two collide. In some cultures, loyalty to parents is so ingrained that a parent's wishes trump everything, even if that means dishonoring Jesus. And Jesus is saying when the two collide, when the demands of devotion to Jesus and the demands of family collide, Jesus is to come first. Now, in our society, we don't have the same kind of loyalty to our parents as in others. But it's not hard to imagine some situations where the demands of family loyalty are so strong. It may be that there's somebody in our wider family circle who's done something that, that is so wrong, it should be brought to the public, perhaps brought uh, to, to the police or something like that, and made public that sins could be confessed and forgiveness found. But the, the, the family says, let's cover it up. And there's a tension. Should we do what Jesus demands or what a family demands? It's not hard to imagine a situation where a loved one's moral behavior collides with the things of the gospel. And we know what the Bible says. We're very clear. But the pressure of seeing this loved one moving away means we begin to re-examine what the Bible says, not in a good sense, but because we love that one so much that we're prepared to love them over Jesus, be devoted to them over Jesus. And slowly over time, we change our thinking and, and lose our devotion to Jesus. You can imagine a situation where parents want a child to have a high-powered career, and the child thinks of something much simpler so they can serve in Sunday school, perhaps because they want to go to the mission field. Now, they're complicated issues, but when it comes to the crunch... Devotion to Jesus must trump devotion to family. Well, if we're following Jesus, we're to be devoted to him. And he gives us the reason. And the reason is no less shocking. Jesus says, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. He says, don't be too attached to the things of this world because they're perishing. Don't be too loyal to a family member who drives you away from Jesus because they are perishing and the danger is you'll perish with them. The Bible is very clear that the world outside of the kingdom of heaven is spiritually dead. Though it seems alive, the time is coming when it will be finished. It will perish. And so Jesus says, do not be loyal to it. Now, it's not that we don't have obligations to work or to family or to friends. Of course we do. But when they come into conflict with Jesus, we choose him because he lasts. There's once a McDonald's executive, and someone asked him, where are your loyalties? What are your priorities? And he said, my number one loyalty is to God, then to my family, then to McDonald's, except on Mondays, and then McDonald's is my number one loyalty. Well, apart from that being totally wrong, it's foolish, 
because in 20,000 years, McDonald's will be no more. In 200,000 years, no one will even remember McDonald's. But Jesus and his kingdom will be going on and on in glory. Well, friends, this is really hard. In many situations, this is very painful because we love our families and it doesn't feel loving to go with Jesus over them. But I want, as we finish, to suggest that it is. Just go back to the Muslim man we considered before. You can imagine as he hears that call, look, choose Jesus or your family. You can imagine his mother pleading with him with tears in her eyes, with anger in her voice. Son, how dare you tear apart our family? Son, family's everything. Well, if he caves in and says, Mom, do you know what? I I won't follow Jesus. He confirms her in her conviction that family is everything. When Jesus says it's not. But if as heart-wrenching as it is, if with tears and in his eyes, with, with prayers and much weeping, he chooses to follow Jesus, knowing that that will break apart the family, there's a sense that he witnesses that family isn't everything because family outside of Jesus is perishing. And as he leaves, as he's cut off, as he endures the shame and the pain and the tears and the hardship, he points that there's something greater with the longing hope that his parents, his wider family might too join them and find eternal life in God's kingdom. Well, Jesus speaks here of family, but of course it's not just family. There are many relationships that seek to make us more devoted to them than Jesus. It could be their friends, it could be the opinion of a friend, it could be what our colleagues at work say, it could be somebody we're dating. Jesus says, don't be loyal to the dead, over devoted to me. Don't be loyal to a dead world. Be devoted to me. Well, Jesus is a man with a mission. It's a mission to save the world. He's the son of man who comes to bear our infirmities and inflictions. He comes to make everything right in the kingdom of heaven. He calls us to follow him, to be part of that, to know the joy of eternal life and salvation. But following him means being a devoted disciple, not a fickle fan. And the question as we finish is, are we willing to say and to mean, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful picture of Peter's mother-in-law, who knows that you've blessed her and healed her and so longs to serve. And Father, we pray that you would make each one of us devoted to you. Help us to count the cost of that, but to see that following you is worth it. And Father, I pray for those who've been challenged by what you've said from this passage. Help us to wrestle with those things before you and help us in all to be devoted to you above anything else. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.